The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter Ella, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 54, Hidden in the Shadows, our interview with Jane Fenn, winner of the British Science Fiction Association Award for Best Short Fiction in 2016. We'll talk about her geek origins, how she got into writing, and her books, including her new novel, Broken Shadow, the second of her two-part Shadowlands series. Remember, you can find us online at generationsgeek.com, including blog posts from me and handy links from all our episodes. Plus, check out the Generations Geek Instagram, featuring Ella's geeky adventures. Now, on with the show. Jane Fenn, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to have you. We're always happy to have on authors, and uh, it's especially fun when we have authors on from across the pond. (laughs) Although, in this case, Ella herself is across the pond. (laughs) I'm here, too. (laughs) <laughs> Where do you live in the country? Um, I live in Devonshire, sorry, Devon, which is pretty remote from London. Um, <laughs> it's lovely, but it's quite quiet down here. I've just moved down recently, so it's, it's, I'm still getting used to the pace of life. It's definitely not as hectic as what I am used to. And I'm also <laughs> one of the youngest people in this town, which is quite unusual. <laughs> I think it's where people, somebody referred to East Devon as God's waiting room, which is possibly <laughs> a little uncharitable. <laughs> yeah, I, I like going out for dinner sometimes. We've been working, at all, working all day and, you know, a hard day's writing. And I think, right, let's go and find something nice to eat. Up past eight, everything's closed. <laughs> everything's closed. It's just like tumbleweeds. <laughs> How did you get started as a geek? When, when did you first get grabbed by something in the sci-fi or fantasy genres yeah i uh, i'm of an age and i think you may be of a similar age scott where um <laughs> it wasn't even a thing i grew up in the 1970s um in rural england not actually in devon um in buckinghamshire but also you know far away from anything mm-hmm. and obviously the internet wasn't even a gleam, gleam in tim berners lee's eye at that point <laughs> so we had I had absolutely no contact with the genre other than what turned up on a screen. Um, so it's the things that were on telly, which was, um, obviously, we please hear Star Trek, mm-hmm. uh, original series, I Am That Old. Um, and that was on a Monday night, which is when I was meant to go to Brownies, so I wasn't having any of that because I wanted to watch <laughs> Star Trek. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really understand, but it was like, oh, it's okay. It seems to be fairly harmless. Um, so so that was actually one of the main things. The other two were more British ones. Um, Jerry Anderson stuff, Captain Scarlet and Thunderbirds, yep. which actually my brother and my dad also liked which was great because I didn't know anyone else that liked any of this stuff. Um, and they liked the gadgets and also Dr. Who, which uh, my brother liked, but he was younger than me and therefore he was more scared than I was. So there was a little bit of sibling rivalry over this various scary episodes on that. Um, there was an episode called the green death. I don't know if you've heard that one. Uh, that one's John Pertwee. It's got giant maggots in a mine. And I have a distinct memory of sitting next to him on the set on the sofa. And I had a cushion on my lap just in case. And he was already halfway behind the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not very healthy, really. But 
there really wasn't any sort of geek culture. There was nothing like that at all. It was just that I seemed to like some odd things on on television. And then I go into WH Smith's, which was the only outlet for books that had all of one shelf of genre books. And I would buy whatever I could that was actually something I'd seen on the screen. Yeah. And that tended to be mainly Doctor Who. I was really proud of my Doctor Who book collection. And other than that, I've actually got a Thunderbirds record now I think about it and Captain Scarlet. And that would probably be worth quite a lot if my brother hadn't scribbled all over the cover. <laughs> but he yeah. Um, but there were never any Star Trek novelizations. And I, I can't help thinking that if there were, I would have got into science fiction a lot earlier than I did. Mm-hmm. And actual proper exploring space science fiction. I'm not saying that Doctor Who isn't science fiction. It most certainly is. But I think my tastes were shaped very much by what was available, as probably was true for you, I suspect, Scott. Yeah, I had a similar childhood that I was in the 70s, mm-hmm. lived out in the country, and Star Trek was my first real exposure to science fiction. I had the advantage of better access to Star Trek uh, fiction here in the States. was stocked yeah. better than uh, it was in your shop, it sounds like. And Doctor Who was never available when I was growing up. Oh, no! <laughs> because I was too far out in the country. But I didn't get to see Doctor Who until I was in college. So for me, it was all Star Trek... Um, but then also the Avengers and uh, Jerry Anderson's UFO. Those are oh, things. Yes, yeah. Those are things that turned up uh, somehow, maybe on the public television station, uh, because our our public television uh, stations here in the states often carry. You know, in the pre-cable days, mm. that would be the station that would carry a lot of uh, British television. Uh, so uh-huh. that's where I saw. Monty Python's Flying Circus and Avengers and stuff like that. You know, and this is an entirely different experience than what Ella has, where everything is available at yeah. a click. And, and I so, grew up with Netflix. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's spoiled for choice. Yeah, <laughs> it, it always it's just astonishes me because I think of the, the days when I was growing up when I would rush home after school uh, because uh, Star Trek was syndicated about the time on in the afternoon, and then there were times when the local stations weren't syndicating it, and then there was just there was nothing. There was no Star Trek. But now, when Ella was little, I was watching her like wandering around the house, watching Star Trek on a pad, <laughs> and you know that was just entirely science fiction from my youthful point of view. <laughs> So I'm living Star Trek. <laughs> you are, we live in the future. As I yeah. Apart, get some sort of new devices. Something clever happens or something stupid happens with technology. Like we live in the future. <laughs> yeah. So, so then how did you continue to, uh, to get into it um, when you had so little access to it? And when did that start? When did it turn to writing? When did you start uh, writing genre? Um, I think I've always been a storyteller. So there is somewhere in the linguistics department of the University of Hertfordshire a tape of me, aged five years old, telling a Star Trek story about, if I remember right, a giant fire extinguisher that came out and put out the planet that was on fire. <laughs> Makes perfect sense when you're five years old. Um, so I, I didn't really differentiate between genre stories and non-genre stories mm-hmm. at all. It was all stories. 
Yeah. Uh, when I was seven, I quote wrote my first novel, unquote, uh, <laughs> which I borrowed my dad's typewriter for. He was delighted uh, when he was away. Um, it was never the same afterwards. It was, I think, four pages long with a lot of tip X with felt tip illustrations. And it wasn't genre. It was, if I remember rightly, called Fritz's Rescue and was about a dog that rescued people. And that was, I think, because there was something pretty appalling, I think it was Disney, called The Rescuers that happened to be on. Mm -hmm. And then that way that you do when you're sort of, you know, less than 10 years old, you soak up everything like a sponge. And when there's very much to soak up, then you make it all up. So uh, that's what was going on there. But it wasn't specifically genre. And um, I didn't get into genre fiction until later, as opposed to genre tie-in fiction. Mm-hmm. And again, I remember clearly when that was. It was at a visitor attra- a tourist attraction called Wookie Hole, um, which is actually in the West Country near where I live. Uh, stay with me on this. Um, <laughs> I, went, I went there um, and had a, a rather lovely day out. I like caves and waterfalls, and it had been a really great day out. I was with my dad, and we went to the, the bookshop stroke gift shop afterwards, and I always went to bookshops, even though... I didn't tend to buy things I didn't know because I was quite conservative and I was just like, mm, have I seen this on the screen? And they had face out a copy of A Wizard of Earthsea and it was the one with Ged changing into Sparrowhawk and it was like kind of stained glass cover. And I just looked at that and thought, that's amazing. I want that. And I bought it and I was slightly nervous in case it wasn't going to work out because I had absolutely no idea what this story was going to be. And everything else I'd read, because it was tie-in, I was like, yep, know what to expect here. And it just blew me away. Um, I'm really glad, actually, it's Nurse of the Gwyn stories, the first the first thing I picked up, because it could have gone badly wrong if it had been something I hadn't liked. <laughs> yeah. But it started at the top, really, with that, and didn't look back after that. Okay, so as you were growing up, you were a storyteller, you loved genre fiction. Uh, eventually, you got to university... And I'm very interested then in both ways. How did those interests in storytelling and science fiction influence what you studied in in university? And then what has that stuff in university, how has that influenced your writing since? I studied humanities because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And I ended up um, specialising in linguistics and astronomy because they were the most interesting two things. But before I talk about them, I think I should just mention what a revelation it was to find that there were other people in the world that read this stuff. Oh, (laughs) yes. Genuinely do not think I had met another geek until I went to university. (laughs) And I was actually at school with Tolkien's granddaughter. Um, and that sounds good. No, no, it's not as good as you think. So she was above me. She was really good at tennis and she was horrible. <laughs> I was reading Lord of the Rings, which I read and reread several times, and I had it flat on my desk during break <laughs> so that nobody could see what I was reading because, you know, I read these weird books. And she came in and she stuck her finger on it and she said, my granddad wrote that. <laughs> and I was just like, it's one of those moments when your childhood evaporates. Because I didn't really know. I knew her name was Tolkien. I thought, could she be the great man's granddaughter? And it's like, she is. And she's horrible. <laughs> so that was not a good moment. But when I got to university and there was a science fiction society and... 
pretty much instantly I fell in with geeks. Within a few weeks, I'd met the geek I eventually married. Um, <laughs> it was great. It was just like this feast after a famine. <laughs> and, and to be honest, the degree was, well, it wasn't exactly secondary. I did get through it, but I was way too busy having fun and finding out about the world, really, um, <laughs> to study. But fortunately, they had subjects I liked. Linguistics, um, I'd like to have had a career that used linguistics, but the two careers that were open to me were advertising or journalism. Mm -hmm. And linguistics, certainly when I studied it, um, it was attracting the radical sort of anarchist types that were exactly what I needed. And by the time <laughs> I left, they, you know, I had come to hate advertising with a vengeance. I mean, I've had, mm -hmm. I've had to write advertising copy occasionally to earn a penny since then. But at times, like, I am not doing this. I am not abusing language and making language <laughs> to something to force people to buy stuff they do not need. Um, a very moral high ground when you're in your early 20s there. Um, so I didn't do that. I kind of wish I'd gone into journalism, but there would have been more training. And I, I also wasn't certain because I knew I'd wanted to write fiction and I had an instinct that if I spent all of my words on non-fiction I wouldn't have any left for my stories which is probably complete rubbish <laughs> but I ended up going to IT basically because pretty much everybody else I knew was either an engineer or into IT and I just fell into it. I could never have been a professional astronomer because I didn't have the maths, to paraphrase the late great. Oh, me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really didn't have the maths because I went to posh girls' school, see further, Tolkien's granddaughter. Um, <laughs> they, they, they were, yeah, I mean, I liked it there, but they were not hot on the sciences, to put it mildly, and I was kind of steered away from science, which is appalling now. But in the 70s, yeah. it was basically a finishing school for girls that were going to marry young farmers, um, there, there was no career development. There was nothing like that. Um, I did all the science that there was, but that wasn't very much. They did not, deep breath, teach physics at all. It wasn't until I went to do A-levels that I realized there was such a thing as physics. Yeah, wow. I know. <laughs> That's a bit grim. So I had no scientific background. I'd done maths, but it'd been pretty basic. So I'd been put off maths, which is annoying because in my primary school, I was doing algebra when I was nine and with a private tutor because they, they said I had a talent for it. But that kind of disappeared when I went to a school where that wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. I guess it shows you the value of education. <laughs> um, so astronomy for a living was never anything that I was going to do, but I just loved studying it. <laughs> Ella, have you recovered from the uh, Tolkien's granddaughter story yet? I am still having an out-of-body experience. <laughs> My wife and I were in London visiting Ella in February, and one of the great things that we did was uh, Ella and I wa did a little walking around uh, outside of uh, Birmingham to some of the uh, places where J.R.R. was in his childhood. And uh, so we got to walk around and see the like the woods, the very Shire-like little woods that uh, he played in as a child. <laughs> it was it was fabulous. So um, so after you get out of university, when did you start pursuing writing as a career, or when when did it um, when did you realize that it could be a career? I, I mean, specifically the uh, the fiction writing. I think I kind of assumed that if I was going to do a thing that earned any money, it would be writing. And uh, you know the fallacy of, yeah, 
Yeah. Money, money <laughs> How naive are we? Because I, and again, this sounds really sad. I, I didn't really have any careers advice. I didn't really think I was going to have a career, but I thought, well, I can write and um, marry some young farmer and bring up his kids or whatever. <laughs> and, and obviously I've always wanted to tell stories. Um, so I'll just do that. And then when I got to college and realized, actually, I could have a career and a life and all that stuff, then I thought, well, I'll be a writer. And I had absolutely no clue how to go about it. And I wasted way too many years not doing it. Well, I say not doing it. I wrote and ran um, a lot of role-playing games, <laughs> a lot of tabletop role-playing games for my mates, because that was storytelling with a captive audience. Yep. They were there. You could write the stuff. You knew it would be fine. Or you could write this story on spec, which you think is brilliant, and you could send it off to Interzone or Asimov, and you could get a form rejection. I think I'll do the thing with my mates. And that went on for about 10 years. So it took a very long time for me to actually pull my finger out and start learning the craft. It was always my intention, but somehow my intention got mislaid. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it really took a good decade or more longer than it should have for me to become a professional writer. But there was never any question about me writing anything other than genre. Why on earth would I want to limit myself? And that's the way I always respond when someone who's not in the genre says, why do you write this stuff? It's like, because I can write any story set in any time, Mm -hmm. any place, doesn't have to exist. Why would I do anything else? Seems so obvious to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. Yeah, that's the thing about this uh, business is even if you study writing, at university, which I did, I my degree is in uh, English. Even if you're learning how to write, and I took a lot of fiction writing classes, that's not really teaching you how to be a writer professionally. You get into this because you love telling stories, <laughs> but it's all just by the seat of your pants. You stumble into things, you get a break here and there. So yeah, it's a very strange world. I, I do want to loop back I'm curious, were you using uh, Dungeons & Dragons when you were doing your tabletop, or what What uh, game? I started doing RuneQuest, um, okay. did a little bit of D&D. I mainly ran Shadowrun, um, okay. because I um, wanted the best of both worlds, so I wanted magic and tech. Um, I read way too much Cyberpunk when it first came out, so I loved that. So Cyberpunk with magic, yep, count mm-hmm. me in. Um, and also a bit of Call of Cthulhu and occasionally some sort of odds and sods um, Emperor of the Petal Throne um, Tecumel, don't know if you've heard of that So, I, and that's a very weird fantasy universe which I think may have influenced things I've done later so it tended to be the, the, the things that were not even by geek standards some of them were quite obscure which is probably not helpful because I never got <laughs> for this I, I mean I didn't, do it, I didn't do it professionally and yeah. again as you were saying Scott I had no idea how to do it I I did actually have a friend who was a professional games writer and she kind of said, I could introduce you to some people at Chaosium, but they probably won't buy because it's basically a seller's market. Mm-hmm. And um, she was probably right. So yeah, that aspect of it, I learned that bit of the craft. I mean, I didn't even have the advantage that you had of having learned the craft of writing of how to string a sentence together. Had there been a, a writing course other than the one at East Anglia, which I, you know, was the only one that was extant when I went to college, I would probably have jumped at it. But you're right that that doesn't teach you how to be a writer. And it sometimes, I think, studying writing, I, I've some people I know that have got writing MAs, because I now teach writing, um, teach creative writing, and people that have studied MAs 
to that higher level. They they can trot out all the rules and everything, but that doesn't necessarily mean they can tell a good story. That mm-hmm. sounds terrible. <laughs> I think it can it can kill the creativity, which is bad. Then when you did first uh, get professionally published, it was with short stories, right? It was, yes. And so how did that happen? Well, I came up with the idea for the novel that became Principles of Angels in, I think it was about 1989. Um, And at that point, I had left college and was kind of working at my horrible IT day job and escaping it by writing and running role-playing games, pure escapism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was aware that I didn't really know what I was doing. So I thought, well, I'll write short stories because I don't really know what I'm doing with this idea, even though I want this to be the novel. So that's why I started concentrating on them. And I basically waited until I had enough of a grasp of the craft to start writing something long. I was using short stories to learn the craft. And then I actually got people who knew what they were talking about to teach me, who knew only I'd thought of that earlier, Um, at which point I thought, well, I'm actually kind of in the habit of short stories. And I do still love them. They are quite different to novels, but they are my first love. And I wish I had more time to write short stories these days. But I very rarely do, unless it's a commission. <laughs> yeah, once you break into the novel market, that really is a demanding place to be. And you've got that inertia where you would just want to keep that going. Yeah. But, I mean, they're outside of a, a, a select few writers that have really made a name as short story writers... For a, a bigger career, it's like novels really are the the way to go. Yeah, it, it's kind of weird actually because, of course, you know, early twentieth century short stories paid better than novels. Yeah, they were. You know, that was when three cents a word was good money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned that one of the uh, stories that you worked on is related to your first series of novels. So when did, when did you decide then to go from the short story and try to write a novel set in that universe? I kind of wrote a really appalling, not even completed short story with the central idea for Principles of Angels, uh, which we may go on to chatting about later. Um, and it was t- appalling. So I thought I need to work a bit more out about this place, mm-hmm. which is what got me writing the short stories. So... Um, my first published short story wasn't actually one of the ones set in uh, that particular in the Hidden Empire universe, mm. but I enjoyed doing it partly as character studies and ways of working things out. And I still like doing that when I have the time. And I was always doing it with a view to the novel complementing the short stories, the short stories complementing the novel. If the short story didn't work well, it was still like a practice sketch for the novel. And that attitude served me well, I think. And I, 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 that's always how I am going to think. Um, that's just how my brain is now wired, because that's how I started working. So, Jane, do you want to talk a little bit about how Hidden Empires started developing into the much larger series that it is the original idea that kicked it all off was and this seems increasingly appealing these days a democracy by assassination <laughs> yeah you can vote to have um a politician who messes up removed in inverted commas and that was the original idea um, and also the idea character wise was what if you had a character who is a professional assassin because obviously they're state-sponsored assassins who is asked to kill the person she cares about most in all the world. And now those two ideas are, you know, 30 years old. And they came together and I thought, I could do something with this if only I had some damn clue. And it took 
many years to do something with this and quite a lot of short stories and a lot of full starts. Um, and finally, there was a novel which finally did sell, which was largely a matter of luck, as these things often are. Mm -hmm. I, at that point, I think I'd had three short stories set in that universe published in various anthologies and magazines. So I had a, a bit of background going on. Um, and of course, then you get the thing where if you are lucky enough to get a book deal, there's the and what else do you have in the universe question? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Give me a week. Um, so it wasn't as hard, I think, as it would be for someone that hadn't lived in that universe and knew an awful lot about the background of it mm -hmm. to actually come up with something. But I then had to come up with what is the next book? But I think also my extensive experience running really long labyrinthine role-playing games came in very useful because metaplotting, having a plot that actually goes through several books or several scenarios, kind of came as second nature to me. But at the same time, I realized the importance of making each book be a discrete story. Because yeah. it does annoy me if I pick up a book and I think, this is great, this is great, it stopped. And I've <laughs> nothing resolved. I'm fine with this is great, this is great, oh, those things are wrapped up, oh, but there's this other thing, at which point I'm hooked. Mm -hmm. So as a reader, that's what I wanted. As a GM, that's what I did. So when I came to write, and there's five Hidden Empire novels, there could potentially be more. There's none planned at the moment, but there could be nominally nine of them, probably. Um, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be to do that. So for over a number of years, you were working uh, almost primarily in the Hidden Empire universe. Were you getting more interested in starting a new series or did you just have an idea that popped into your head that didn't fit into the hidden universe uh, what was behind the start of the new books it was i mean it was partly the vagaries of the publishing industry uh in that that series had not it had come to a sort of end there's more to come but there wasn't a publisher for there any more to come at that point okay. so i did need to look for another idea as you know as professional authors we write we write what we are told to write to an extent <laughs> But at the same time, it, would, it was quite nice to make a fresh start because although it's great writing in an existing universe, you obviously have to be careful not to contradict your own canon. I mean, you write Star Trek. I was just like, how can you do that when the canon is so big? <laughs> uh, it's only myself I'm contradicting. Um, but it was quite nice to do a bit of a reset and do something that's, that's very different um, and that is a, a different sub-genre, um, different characters, just... Mm -hmm. Although it turns out it's some of the same obsessions, who knew? Um, but yeah, it, it, it was a refreshing change. And I, and I wanted to just do something that was a bit off the wall as well and that wasn't easily definable um, because uh, it's science fantasy, which is not fashionable, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I mentioned the name. This is the Shadowlands series. And there are now two books out. And uh, Ella, did you want to pop in now? Because you've uh, read the first book. Sure, yeah. Is it a series or is it just a two? Well, again, it was one of those their two book deals. And I would like to write more in this universe. Um, but again, it's not necessarily down to me. Having said that, I have written a short story, which is out later this year in it because I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but perfect. But there, there, there's more, definitely more stories to tell. I'd like to get the chance to do it, I think, is the, the diplomatic answer on that one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, if you were going to um, sort of describe Shadowlands to our listeners who don't know what it is in, like, one sentence, what would you say? <laughs> Oh, I hate doing this so much. <laughs> you can you can push uh, it to like two, totally fine. But like, do you have like a, just one like ready to go? 
<laughs> Absolutely not. I really should do, shouldn't I? Uh, it is... Well, the main thing is it's a divided world, which does appear to be one of my obsessions. Um, so the original grain of the idea was what if you have a world... And again, it is coming from my astronomy knowledge in a way that even though it's science fantasy and not science fiction strictly... The Hidden Empire books really didn't, because I thought, what if you've got a world that is a class, going around a class O star, which will mean nothing to um, anyone that doesn't know astronomy, but <laughs> it's basically a hot young star. If you had such a world, it would be very, everything would be very fast. There'd be a lot of mutation. There'd be a lot of ultraviolet. What would it be like? And the answer is uninhabitable to humans, assuming that they can't terraform it. What would they do? Well, they'd either have to change themselves or they'd have to do some sort of limited changing of the world. And that was basically the idea. And um, that's almost spoilery because that's kind of never comes out in the books because no one in the book has the faintest idea what the world is like. They just know they live either in the Shadowlands, which are moderately low tech individual um, city states, effectively, separated by the Skyland, which is inimical to humans, normal humans. But the Shadowkin, they are quite happy with their culture. It's quite a religious culture. It's low-tech because it's a low-iron world, which is also part of being a young planet in a young system. Mm -hmm. um, and the Skyland is just an alien place to them. But the Skykin, who live there, are effectively modified humans who are symbiotes with one of the native life forms. And I just thought, I can have a lot of fun with this. And I have, and I want to have more fun with this. <laughs> that was a perfect description. Thank you, first. Okay, so you talked a little bit about how the Shadowland and the Skyland are kind of, kind of separate. How did that world building come along? Obviously, you've talked about the role-playing games and everything, but I found uh, Hidden Sun very unique. I don't know if it's because I'm not reading enough science fantasy or because <laughs> <laughs> it just is. I think maybe a little bit of both. So how did the world kind of come together? Um, it wasn't too hard to do the Shadowlands world building because it is very similar to, you know, fantasy standard-ish cultures although the two shadowlands you see are very different one of them i kind of had italian city states in my head um for shen which is the shadowland that where things start off um zect is a bit weirder it's got some sort of aztec influences slightly egyptian slightly chinese it's got all sorts of things which are probably verging on cultural appropriation but this is set a long time in the future in other words <laughs> i can get away with it oh. but, um they they are recognisably human cultures. Um, and also, more importantly, it's a recognisable human ecology because they basically built the kind of things that we would have had on Earth because they had the facilities to do that back in the midst of time, um, all of which they've forgotten. Um, the Skyland was a lot more challenging but a lot more fun. So I always try and get real scientists to help me, and I had a real astronomer to help me, and I also had someone who is uh, studied biology to a high level. So... We assume that life has two biological sexes generally and that um, they get it on and that's how you get more life and that's how DNA gets passed down the line. If you've got a very high mutation rate, that isn't necessarily the best way of doing it. So there are plenty of alternatives and I had to think about those and talk to people about them, which include chimeras where you've got basically a being that has is multiple beings mashed together and you've got colony animals where they exchange DNA freely 
and then go off and form a new colony and exchange a load of DNA with the others. Um, so you're just going to get different life forms. I mean, I've kept some things the same, the, the whole kind of symmetry, um, the fact that it is DNA. They are recognisably alien it's alien life, but it's recognisably life that we can relate to. Um, and I did watch loads of David Attenborough programmes to steal stuff from the real world. Pretty <laughs> bloody weird. Um, and then just see how I could fit it into there. That's awesome. I was actually, I was going to ask if you also had like an interest in biology and botany along with astronomy because of the way um, the wildlife is, especially in the Skylands. So, for example, the night wings. Did you just like brainstorm um, with your science friends? Like, did you just sit down and be like, what if it was like a dragon, but electric, and then also kind of a dementor plus like a little <laughs> bit of Lord of the Rings? Everybody thought of them that way. Um, I did study biology to A level, which is sort of just pre college level, I think, um, in American standards, and I've kept up an interest in it. So I had a vague idea of what I was doing. Um, I tended to come up with the ideas and then run them past people that might be able to tell me whether I could get away with it or not. Um, yeah, nightwings, are, they're, they're one of the sort of colony animals, so they are actually made up of lots of different things um, with different functions, but there is an overarching sort of pre-consciousness. Quite, I'm, I'm, one of the themes I keep returning to is kind of shared semi-consciousness or empathy and all that kind of lovely psi power stuff and there's a lot of that in hidden empire yeah a lot of the skyland um creatures they have not shared consciousness but they they have a sixth sense going on it's almost a sense of smell that verges into a sense of mental communion i bet we have no words for this um <laughs> so, which is fine because that means i could be pretty vague about it and you have that to an extent with the skykin which makes them more than human and also quite alien uh, which makes them very difficult to write i've not written from the point of view of a full skykin character um because i've got to try and get my head around how that would work because <laughs> it would be very alien but also have some human connections so i'm kind of working up to that <laughs> we've talked about you studying linguistics and astronomy already and a little bit about how that's influenced uh, your work, especially like all the astronomy stuff in Hidden Sun. I guess I'm just curious as to how, like I want to say almost like language diversity, but that's not it. I just, when I was reading, I noticed in the Shadowland, they take like siestas and, um, but they also use the French word crèche, which I butcher because I never took French. And then um, <laughs> the, the names, like you said, in uh, the Skyland especially have a lot of different, like varying inspirations. And I just wondered if you could speak a little bit to that. It's always tricky, I think, when you are, you've got things that are recognisably Earth-like, what term do you use? There's this thing which um, you'll probably be familiar with, Scott, they don't call a rabbit schmirp. It's from the Turkey City Lexicon, which is a kind of writer's advice thing, things in genre things to really just not do. Because if it hops like a rabbit, looks like a rabbit, and really is a rabbit, just call it a goddamn rabbit. Um, so, um, so it's, and I've got, I've got two things side by side, one of which is very alien, and one of which is actually very earth like. So, and I, because it's a cultural melange, the earth like one, I felt I could take terms that were, I mean, I think crush is, is quite a common term, certainly in this country. Um, yeah, it's I, used I, much more in England than it is in the States. 
I think it is. And, and there was no real equivalent because it's not exactly an orphanage because they aren't really orphans. Yeah. Um, also, I quite like the the um, it's the associations with word. Always, yes, going the association with the crash as it being something which is quite enclosed and nurturing, but also a little bit alien. Um, so, and you know, and words like siesta. There isn't another word for the day is very long, so we need to take a nap to get through it. <laughs> so that's why that's ended up in there. So, from the point of view of the the terms that I'm using. Um, that aren't quote made up uh it's thinking what fits it best in that culture loads of made up words in the skyland of course there's a lot of them you know rhino beasts and peachons and things where i've just had fun with them but when i'm making up words that aren't portmanteau words like rhino beast is it's two english words or when i'm making up names i think one thing that linguistics studying linguistics did for me is make me hyper aware of sounds i names are important and i'm very conscious of having a, a word that, that to name something or somebody that sounds right. I always read all these things out loud. So I wanted, if I, you came up with a name, you know, if you read a name for a character who's in one of the two Shadowlands, you should know which of the two they came from by the sound of their name. And I was, that's important to me to do that. It doesn't necessarily impinge on other readers, but I'm kind of, yeah, it's it's not exactly an obsession, but it's something I want to do. I never really wanted to make up a full language because, A, I'm lazy and B, Tolkien already did it. Um, and I, I, it's tempting to do it, but I just want there to be an implied extra level of something beyond English or whatever language people are reading in, which is just a little bit alien, a little bit different, which is why I try and be careful with my names. I've had a fantasy novel idea for decades, and one of the things that has scared me away from ever trying to write it in a significant way is the language issue. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to do it now. I think fantasy has changed. I mean, I'm being quite ill-informed in this because I do not read a huge amount of fantasy. I mainly read science fiction, but I feel that fantasy has changed enough that it's wide enough now that you don't have to, yeah. but it can be fun if you want to. But, of course, you don't have to make up the whole language. You just have to be consistent in your use of it. The second Hidden Empire novel um, is set in a world that is not entirely unlike part of the British Isles called Wales, which I love very much, even though it rains all the time. <laughs> um, and I've used, I've borrowed Welsh words, and I've not had any hate mail from Welsh speakers because I've, I've borrowed them and kept the meaning. So mm -hmm. where there's something which is specific to this society and it can be obvious from the context what I mean, I've used the Welsh word or a variation on the Welsh word. Um, so I have nicked another language because I am really lazy. Um, but <laughs> you you would only really have to come up with the words which are adding depth rather than yeah. saying the same thing again. Do you see what yeah. I mean? That's, yep. that's how I feel. Um, but obviously each to their own. <laughs> and Welsh, particularly to Americanize, Welsh looks like an alien language. <laughs> <laughs> like it too quite often i'm going to say merry christmas to you in welsh now now dalla llawen oh <laughs> yeah, that wasn't klingon that was welsh yeah <laughs> i was going to say that there is a lot of similarities one of the protagonists in hidden sun ria is a budding scientist maybe less budding and more actively scientist although she doesn't use the word scientist um and she is doing that in a society that's very much sort of patriarchal 
And I was wondering if um, her fight to be acknowledged as somebody who uh, she's also a, a very high status, her sort of fight as uh, trying to be acknowledged as someone who knows what she's talking about and is capable um, was uh, inspired by any real life experiences, even if they're a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the whole uh, woman in a man's world thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's weird. Cause I went to an all girls school. So there was kind of no real male influence there. Then I went to a university that was mainly technical, so nearly all my friends were male. And I, I was oblivious, largely, of a lot of this stuff. And then I started writing science fiction. And the number of people, not so much my friends, obviously, because they knew me, the number of people then go, but isn't that for boys? And I just got very sick of that. Now, happily, our actual genre, we geeks, have caught up with this fact. It did take a little while, and occasionally you do still get people that haven't quite worked it out that it's nothing to do with the disportation of your innards as to what you can actually write or as pat cadigan memorably put it when i was on a panel with her several years ago now women write sf get over it boys but (laughs) it's not too much of a problem i think it's still a problem outside of our genre so yes there was an element of that i'm i'm also very aware with ria that i have not exactly cheated but there is absolutely no way she could do what she could do what she does if she weren't very high status individual, if she, was yeah, not, yeah. if she didn't belong to the ruling class. It's a very class ridden society, which is no good thing, but is an interesting thing to explore. And I was aware that I gave her that, asp- that advantage because otherwise it simply wouldn't work. Um, the second book has her kind of coming up against that a bit more with a character takes on an apprentice who is. Um, not of the same class and she it takes her a while to kind of realize that people can't spend all day watching a hive of bees and looking at their behavior because they actually have work to do <laughs> and Rhea also she makes um a big discovery at the end of hidden sun i don't know if you if you uh consider it to be a spoiler uh or not and i was wondering what prompted you to have her discover that as sort of like it's sort of like this subplot that she's been um studying the heavens um it was kind of inevitable um because the main sort of emotional arc is about her um going after her brother and all the politics that's going on uh, and it's but the science never stops being important to her so almost while all these things are going on she is observing she is thinking and she comes to a startling conclusion which obviously you'll have to read the book to find out what it is um, which is not actually that startling to the readers who will go, yeah, that is in fact true. Well done on spotting it. But nobody else in the world realised it yet. <laughs> We're going to take a break from Hidden Sun for a second, at least a second. Um, I read your bio on your website and it said that on the weekends you like to live like a medieval peasant. <laughs> and I want to hear more about that. Um, yeah, historical reenactment. I don't do as much of it as I used to. And now I've moved to Devon. I don't actually, I've got to find a group down here. But it's one of my hobbies of which I never have enough time to do. Um, and it has many advantages. One, I get to make clothes. I used to be a cosplayer back in the day, a long time ago before cosplay was even a thing. So <laughs> I love making the clothes. I love history. I've done you know some research on it. I like camping. Um, and I like, well, I like drinking with my mates. Um, <laughs> and you get to do all of those things with a sense of self-importance if you've dressed up and the public are watching you, although you don't do the drinking until the public go home. Um, I'd also done quite a lot of LARPing when I was younger. And I kind of, you know, the LARPing, you actually get hit and you actually kind of run around and you have to be quite fit. 
you can do the reenactment and you, you, you know, there is the combat aspect of it. I've got a very nice long bow, which my very trusting husband bought me for an anniversary present. Um, <laughs> um, so I do do things, I do do archery, but it's actually, you spend a lot more time cooking and eating food than you do chasing people around with weaponry. And I like that too. So yeah, it's, it's a hobby I like. I, I haven't done it as much recently as I've wanted to, but it is one of those things that ticks a lot of my boxes. That is the best possible answer. I was like, I really hope she says that she's literally doing historical reenactment because I was kind of like, well, she's going to say that she like eats uh, lamb and lights bonfires or something, but that's... <laughs> I, I, I have actually got a proper medieval tent. And, and most of my group have proper medieval tents and they, they're loads of hassle, but when, they, when they're up, they look great and they're proper pavilion type things. But of course... The thing is, you also have to sleep in it. So they mostly have got these beautiful tapestries behind which we've got like a little gas cooker and a comfortable chair and maybe an <laughs> icebox. And the public does not see that. So whilst we are cooking stuff on a spit and talking about all this stuff and doing our embroidery, that's great. They go home, we break out the cold beers. <laughs> it's actually very funny to me. Um, the, the, the attitude that the, the punters, as we really shouldn't call them, um, have. Uh, some of them are great. Some of them are really engaging. Uh, it's now become more of a thing, and it's more accept. I don't know, because you, you have Renaissance fairs? Yep. Um, it's very similar to that, but the group I'm in is, is high authenticity, uh, not so high authenticity that you can't have an icebox behind your tapestry with your beer in. But while the public is there, um, for example, um, you can't eat anything that isn't authentic. And you have to, in theory, you're meant to talk, not obviously in ye oldy Englishy way, which is just, don't get me stuck <laughs> on that. But you're meant to talk about subjects which would be relevant. And I, because I'm a role player, try and encourage them to do that and stay, quote, in character. But the boys mainly want to talk about the weapons, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> so and the rest of us are just like yeah whatever uh, but you do get the public asking some daft questions um and it's normally is that a real whatever so is that a real sword which it patently is it's made out of metal you can you know there it is. <laughs> is that a real fire mm, yeah it's a real fire it's not a hologram and my favorite one was asked to one of my friends who just had a kid is that a real baby and she was oh my god so she turned around and went no it's a reproduction i made her myself <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. So is it like, do you guys choose like a specific uh, sort of century or like yeah. a specific year? Or is it because obviously Renaissance fairs in America are more like because general? Yeah, a bit of everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, the, the group I'm in is 14th century. And some groups do a specific year. There's something called Kentwell, which is Tudor. And they have a different year. And that's actually a static thing where you go to a house and you, you do live even more authentically in the period and you take on characters from the period and the public come to the house. Um, the group I'm in, we go to basically have an excuse for the boys to hit each other with um, metal things um, <laughs> in a field. Uh, I should actually say, actually, some of the best fighters I know are female, but I am a coward and I can't run very fast, so I just stick to up <laughs> Normally relatively safe, you can do it from the back. Um, but yes, we have a period and we stay in period in our materials, in foodstuffs and all that kind of thing. Um, and I, I did, I admit I picked a period that I quite like the fox for. <laughs> <laughs> so I have an excuse to make them. <laughs> this brings up something that always amuses me. <laughs> Americans will always use the phrase that someone has a British accent as if there is just one <laughs> accent. I mean, how many accents 
are native just to London on its own. So yeah, uh, American Renaissance festivals, I love them. We have a really huge, well-established one here in the Twin Cities where we live that I've been going to since I was younger than Ella is now. Uh, I mean, it's been going for decades. And it's a lot of fun, but yeah, it it is a more generic, let's have fun acting goofily... (laughs) in in period clothes (laughs) i mean we have a lot of different kind of variations on it there's um the society of creative anachronism which obviously is american thing yeah um there's something called the far isles that got me into doing the reenactment and that was very much about a bit of role playing a bit of costume a lot of eating a lot of drinking and sitting around having fun and it wasn't a public thing and i i do have a soft spot for that but i quite like the fact you've got the public because it gives you a focus to Mm -hmm. do it you know brings out the show yeah, showman in me. Uh, it's quite nice to do that. Uh, we do dancing as well, which I'm very fond of. So you get to put on dance shows, medieval dance shows. So that, that's all good stuff. But yeah, I don't do as much as I, I used to. I must get back into it. Find a group down here. I actually probably find a group for a different, slightly different period, and then I'll have an excuse to make a load more frocks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the Renaissance fairs in America because people who aren't like nerds will go. Mm-hmm. And then it's funny both to see the clash, but also then all of a sudden it's acceptable for me to show up in like this full costume and everyone's like, oh, all right, like, I guess Ella's ready. <laughs> and it's like, I would love to talk more about the new book. Obviously, I've only read a few pages because I just want to, I, <laughs> I didn't want to wait after I finished with the sun. I was like, okay, I just need to read. I need to know where we are. And then I can. <laughs> yeah, Broken Shadow takes place a couple of years after Hidden Sun. Um, and the thing that Rhea comes up with is very important, certainly initially and all the way through. A lot of it is about the consequences of people's actions from the first book. I can't actually say a huge amount about it without spoilering. (laughs) Uh, It's more of the same and then it goes and does something unexpected. (laughs) That's what I can really say. (laughs) Yeah, it's very intricate. I noticed that when I was reading Hinsun, I was like, I can't talk about this without spoiling everything about like because everything is a surprise to the reader excellent i talked a lot on um our podcast about how much i love having like this initial block of like world building where you're like oh this is this and like whatever like explaining stuff and obviously like hidden sun doesn't really do that like the reader is sort of like learning as stuff happens um but you also don't have the excuse of well here's somebody who doesn't know anything about the world either and so the reader like learns through them it's just like you're just in it right away and so everything is a surprise and I don't want to ruin anything for anyone <laughs> I, I make the reader work hard and um, I do do that a bit actually the um I call it I'm, I'm a stranger here myself is what I call it as a, when, as, a, as a thing to teach and it's a really useful thing of course it's having a character from outside of a peculiar place who comes in as a stranger and it's what they notice because of course Rhea does go to the Skyland, which she's always wanted to do. And so we do get it through her view, but because she is a scientist, her view is quite biased. The things she notices are not the things necessarily we'd notice. And I can only really talk about things she notices because we're in her viewpoint. But yes, that, that, it hamstrings you, but at the same time, I like the challenge of that. Yeah, I, I do make my readers work quite hard to get to the bottom of the world because I like, as a reader, to feel that I've made the effort and got to the bottom of the world. Do you ever play text games? Text adventure type ones. Yeah. 
back in the day, I did a bit. This is a long, long, long time ago, and now it's more of a thing. I, I haven't really done any role-playing that isn't face-to-face -face for a long time. It's all been some tabletop and or freeform stuff. But I did some of those back when they were first a thing, and it was like one letter at a time appeared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just curious because I have um, this app on my phone where I can play text games. I like it because in public it just looks like I'm texting, but really I'm playing a game. And there's <laughs> a game that the protagonist is this woman who's semi high up in like some political thing you don't really know and she like one of the first things you do is like figure out how to use i don't know if they call it a sight glass but they like she's like use their um but they're on elephants instead of rhinos this is totally kind of off topic but <laughs> that's <laughs> just weird there's nothing new under the sun or sun so people have the same ideas that's fine <laughs> <laughs> and I was reading Hidden Sun and I was like, oh my god, this is so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that just happens all the time to writers. In fact, well, it happens all the time to everybody, but definitely happens all the time to writers, I find. When, when, yeah. I'm, when I'm working on something um, and I'm, I'm trying to get the ideas together and I will keep seeing references to whatever it is I was thinking about, even if it's something, and I can't, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but there'll be something, some piece of technology or some um societal thing something that is just like i had never really thought of this before and i've heard it mentioned once on the radio i overheard a conversation and look there's one over there so yeah <laughs> it's everywhere <laughs> i know i i posted a couple of short little like 50 second videos on instagram and every time i do it i like give myself a week where i don't watch any videos on youtube because i know that if i watch my favorite YouTubers is like Jenna Marbles. And I know if I watch a Jenna video, then I'm going to edit it to make it literally a Jenna Marbles video. <laughs> now that you've finished the second novel, do you have any projects that you're working on? Well, I am actually working on something, but I can't tell you what nope. it is. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not That's... exactly contracted yet, but I'm hoping it will be in being very vague here. And it's something completely different. And, and, it's actually, and it's actually in somebody else's universe, and that is definitely all I can say. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. understand entirely. Um, between my own writing and all my writer friends, Ella grew up listening to me saying, or other people saying, <laughs> can't really say, but... Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that must be very frustrating. <laughs> yes. It's more frustrating... Um, recently which here's something we can talk about H have you been watching disco oh no oh, uh, disco and discovery yeah you see i didn't even know it was called disco now <laughs> <laughs> yes i have <laughs> and yes i do like it I, do. although it's, it, it, it's definitely quite a weird redefinition of the universe now i'm aware that you guys know way more about the universe than I do. I have watched pretty much all of the Trek except Enterprise, which I didn't get on with. And I do like Discovery, <laughs> Disco, as I shall now call it. Uh, but he's way more into it than I am, and he knows way more about the universe. So he's like, oh, it's that, that, that. And I'm going, hmm, okay. <laughs> Be because of my uh, job copy editing mm. the novels, I had to be working on some of the first Discovery tie-in novels before the show was on the air. Oh. <laughs> and so to make it easier for me to do that job, uh, I was reading the scripts for the show before the show aired. 
And so, of course, I have all my uh, non-disclosure agreements with Simon & Schuster and CBS and all that sort of stuff. But, of course, then Ella, who early on in her life became as huge a Star Trek geek as myself, there she was living in the house with a guy who knew all this inside dirt, who who wasn't spilling any of it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that and it was even worse because it was like before anything aired so all we had was like that trailer and I was like popping okay. up from around the corner yes. like who is she <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I usually don't think of myself as having a very good poker face but I was forced to really uh, up my game on my poker face because Ella would be guessing at things and sometimes oh. she was <laughs> Very accurate, and I had to make sure I, that mean I didn't. When I got it exactly right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had to not react at all. <laughs> I remember so, we were in the kitchen. I remember it so clearly, and I was like, "She's Spock's adopted sister. I know it." And you were just like oh, laughing, God. and I was like, "I know she is," but I thought that was like too good to be true, and I was totally <laughs> like, <laughs> "Like I didn't think, like I had no idea that I was right at all until we watched like the episode." And I was like, "Oh my God, I knew." <laughs> yeah, no, I could just be vague at, at people I don't know all that well. I'm I'm not like uh, having a domestic situation where I'm constantly being tricked. <laughs> Before we uh, wrap things up here, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Did you want to mention any uh, uh, favorite books or movies or TV shows in the genre that you're currently watching? Or book-wise, it tends to be whatever I'm reading at the moment forget about it i really do need to do book spreadsheets as opposed to because i always end up looking at all the books on my shelves and going yeah that was good wasn't it um so book at the moment um is uh, ken mcleod corporation wars which is a posthuman sort of post singularity type book it's about um downloaded human consciousness and machine consciousnesses but like a lot of Ken McLeod's work it is what I call sociological science fiction which is my favourite it's about societies and humans interacting even though there are no human characters technically speaking in it Mm -hmm. so I'm enjoying that very much Um, I've normally got a couple of books on the go I've just finished something called The Kingdoms of Elfin and this is a going back to my roots thing Um, it's by uh, an early 20th century writer called Sylvia Townsend Warner and she wrote about I mean, I love Fake Kingdoms and stuff. I've used all of that, um, and that's you know, early influences. But she wrote writes about the sort of classical land fairy, um, the, you know, the wee folk, whatever, mm-hmm. from an ethnographical point of view, from their point of view, as if they are the normal culture and we're the weirdos. Oh, nice. um, and it's it's quite dark, um, and it's very different. And it's just a whole. I'd kind of thought I, I I got through my obsession with all that kind of stuff, but reading that, I think, oh, I'd play with that. It might actually feed into the thing I cannot tell you about as well. So, <laughs> um, so that's all good. So those are the, those are the books that are currently on the shelf or just on their way out. I don't know what we're going to read next, but there is a big to read. Actually, it's two shelves. Who am I kidding? Two large big to read shelves. <laughs> Uh, Watching-wise, God, there's some good stuff around here. Talk about bread and circuses. I mean, um, whatever else you may say about this mad and crazy world, we've got so much good stuff to watch. Yeah. Uh, Hard to know where to start sometimes. A lot of it has recommendations that I take from people. For example, I would probably never have watched The Good Place if someone hadn't, several people (laughs) hadn't recommended it. Because you look at that and you think, what, really? But it's amazing. And there's nothing like that. I, uh, yeah, I, um... I mentioned that my degree was English, but I, I actually uh, double majored 
and my my second major was philosophy. So as I a did one, I did one year of philosophy. So yes. <laughs> yeah. So as a creative writing slash philosophy degree, then to watch the Good Place is just like wow, this is just made for me. <laughs> yes, it it's is. just amazing work they do on there. It, it is. I mean, it, how can something be educational about moral philosophy and also hysterically funny? Yes, <laughs> when yeah, they. And, and, their uh, enactment of the uh, trolley car thought yes. experiment. <laughs> yeah. Also, I want a Janet. I really want a Janet. <laughs> no, that, 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 that's just, and I think it's one of those things that will stand the test of time because it's just, the, I don't think they can be anything emulating it because it is just so unique. So that's definitely a, um, I think I'm completely up to date on that. Um, just finished watching season three of The Expanse, which obviously I love because yes. space opera. And I read the first book almost in sort of devoured it in not exactly one sitting because it's a long book. But um, my husband's read all of them and I haven't simply because life is not life is too short. I want to. I actually kind of want to break my leg or do something that means <laughs> I don't something means I can't write for a while and I'm just gonna read the whole of the expanse. But um, as a writer you don't really get holidays, so Yeah. And it's yeah, it's they're on my Kindle just waiting, waiting to be read. Yeah, I love the expanse love the show. And then one day I was thinking, maybe I should check out one of the books because I've enjoyed the show so much. But then I saw that they are all quite long, huge Damn. books. And so then I was like, boy, I just don't know if I'm going to have the time for that. But I love, you know, broadly speaking, you can break science fiction into two groups. There's the, you know, Star Trek, faster than light, artificial gravity. And then on the other end, there's something like The Expanse, which stays much more closer to real physics and it's um i mean i love the star trek stuff obviously but it's really fun to uh get into something like the expanse where they really try to show uh zero g and micro g environments in a realistic way and it and especially now that uh with cgi and stuff you can capture the feel of that so realistically uh without it just seeming like a bunch of uh kind of cheesy wire work it mm. <laughs> looks more realistic i don't ella i don't think you've checked out the expanse yet have you no i haven't yeah it's it's a lot of fun and really interesting and i mean and there are other aspects of it that are more science fictiony but but it's all grounded in a in a much more realistic uh physical universe so that's yeah that's i can't wait to see what they do now with this with season four well, in- indeed, uh, my husband's giving me like uh, that. It's almost the reverse thing where I'm sort of going. So, what are they going to do now that thing has happened? He went, wait and see. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's like read all the books. <laughs> and they're they're yeah. sticking pretty close to the books, right? Yes, he they're... said. Well, uh, but what they've done is they've they've shifted some things around, introducing some characters at different times. But mm-hmm. um, and I, from what I remember, the first book it certainly feels very similar. There's an interesting example of linguistics, by the way, in that, of course, with the Belter speak. Um, yeah. There are good. Um, and that, that's interesting to see that done in a science fiction environment. And it does seem to work as well, particularly the character Naomi, who switches between her two um, dialects, the Belter yeah. and the, the mainstream one. So, yeah. I don't know what a professional linguist would think, but to a layperson like myself, it seems like a very realistic extrapolation in, you know, that, that if you imagine a few hundred years more of uh, evolution of, of English under those uh, <laughs> living conditions it it seems very natural 
It's good that they're doing it. I mean, um, this is this is the linguist in me saying this. Now, I, I probably should have mentioned it earlier that I think we have to take a lot of shortcuts in science fiction and fantasy because realistically speaking, 50 years, you'll diverge quite a lot. If you've got two cultures in two different environments, my Shadowlands really shouldn't be able to understand each other. I mean, they've got trade between them and my worlds mm-hmm. and the Empire shouldn't really be able to understand each other. I kind of impose a, there is an overall order, semi-religious and one case and kind of trade in the other means it's important that everybody speaks the same language but people that don't travel between the two places um would not speak in a way that someone from the other place would recognize realistically speak and i know that that's unrealistic so i like the fact i mean it is kind of lip service with their their belter argot their their Mm -hmm. dialect um because it would probably deviate even more um, and it would also, I think, have a lot more idiomatic speech. There is some, but more idiomatic speech related to the environment that they live in, because mm-hmm. that's how language changes um, in an environment, in the interaction with it. It's partly human interaction, but it's human-to-environment human to interaction as well. So, but I like the fact they tried to do it, um, and I, that's just an extra thing that make, you know, makes the show really appealing to me. One of the things that is great about Star Trek, as opposed to other franchises that have to start from scratch is that even if, as is the case, they're kind of playing fast and loose with the canon, um, you know, they've got a reason to reset and that's fine and we're all good with it, you can be confident that they can come up with a plot arc that goes through several series because they'll get several series. Um, We're thinking about things I've enjoyed recently um, or even back in the mists of time. I mean, I like Stargate, but they were, and I I don't think you guys have seen it, have you? Because it was one of those can't commit so much of your life to it. And I do get that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and I did like it that you did feel, well, they probably only had several series, you know, one series, then two, then you've got to work out a new one. They did very well. Um, Battlestar Galactica didn't. I was really disappointed in that. As a re- um, I mean, it was a reboot. It was an ex- existing thing, although admittedly execrably bad in the 70s. Yeah. But I think, yes, wasn't it just? Um, but don't ever go back and watch it, Ellen. Just don't. Uh, but they did something with it. But then they kind of tried to tie it into what the original terrible 70s premise was, and they really, I felt, binned it. But the thing with Star Trek is you, you can be confident that whatever they do, you might not like all of them as much as each other. And I didn't like Enterprise because it was a bit corn-fed boy in space for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's unfair, um, it turns out, because um, my husband's watched all, all of them, and occasionally he'd say, watch this one, you'll like it. And I went, I would like that. But everything in Star Trek... You've got such a solid foundation there. Yeah. It, even if you are rebooting it, even if you are changing it, even if you are going somewhere else with it. And that just gives, I think, all of those shows such a confidence and such a believability that I will always watch them, even though I don't like all of them. Yeah. I'll certainly try and watch all of them. But yes, I'm going to keep watching Discovery. Yeah. <laughs> I really quite enjoyed the Battlestar Galactica reboot, but I went into it knowing that there was no way I would be satisfied by the ending mm. because ba- the, the foundation of that of the original show with the sort of pseudo-Egyptian lost tribe thing, yeah. that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. And there's really no way to make it make sense. But I understand why they felt that, they, that that was a, an integral part of the concept, that they had to keep it if they were going to call their show Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> So even though I enjoyed much of the show, much of the journey, I knew that when we got to the ending, it would be entirely unsatisfying. And they made sort of an epic effort to try to somehow make sense <laughs> yeah. uh, of, of, the, of the... But 
you, you can't make sense of it. It's it's nonsense, and so I really didn't like those the last few episodes. But so many of the episodes on the way are so oh, enjoyable. That, yeah, there was some great. And there's a whole lot of the whole, you know, what does it mean to be human question, which is largely, I think, what our genre is about, asking that question. Yeah. Um, there was plenty of that going on and plenty of intrigue and betrayal and all that lovely, tasty stuff. So, yes, I loved it. But I, I probably should have had your attitude, Scott. I probably should have known that at the end it really wasn't going to deliver. But they built up my hopes. And then I think the last half, half series, it's just like, oh, no, 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 no. Particularly as I had Jimi Hendrix stuff and I, I like my music. It's like, oh, what are you going to do with it? Oh, really? That's what you're going to do with it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been great having you on the show. Um, I look forward to when I get the time to read the books and, and I'm going to make sure that Ella doesn't spoil them too much telling me about them. So thanks for coming on uh, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what that uh, new project will be sometime down the road. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been great fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the time we have for this episode. Find out more about Jane at her website, janefenn.com. That's J-A-I-N-E-F-E-N-N, janefenn.com. And follow her on Twitter, at janefenn. You can also support her on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash janefenn. Tune in next time for episode 55, All Aboard the Hogwarts Express, when Ella Skypes in from London to tell us about visiting the Making of Harry Potter exhibit at Warner Brothers Studio in Watford and seeing Harry Potter and the Cursed Child live on stage in London. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a small room beneath the stairs. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>